In Luke 7, 11 through 17, reads, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, O great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole town of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. This week I really had a good time digging into this text. I studied a lot, meditated a lot, and the Holy Spirit was talking to me in my little office while I was working on this text. And I put together a nice looking manuscript, has a lot of good quotes in here. I even, this time around, gave that manuscript to Jared and asked him for feedback, which is honestly the best part of the manuscript is Jared's feedback on it. Some good words he shared. Uh, But I feel like the Lord was talking to me in my heart. So now I brought up here instead. Actually, I have the notes too, just in case I need them. But instead, I brought up my big Bible. And what I want to try to do is just uh, hide the notes, open the Bible, and preach to you from the heart. Sound like a plan? And I would love it if you'll pray with me that the Holy Spirit will help me preach God's word from the heart. But I'm going to challenge you. If I'm going to preach from the heart, you've got to listen from the heart. Sound like a plan? All right, let's bow our heads and pray one more time. Father, you have already heard our prayer. Thank you for the prayer of Jared. I say yes and amen to that. And now we want to be still again and say, we need you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we need you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning. Holy Spirit, be our encourager this morning. Be the one who inspires us and reminds us who we are and who you are. Be our healer. Be the one who calls us to repentance and who renews our joy. Lord, we want to be wise and mature in Christ. So Holy Spirit, help us. We say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this story from Luke 7 happens outside of a little town called Nain, just outside the town gate. And Nain was about six miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up, walking distance. So he probably knew some people from Nain. Actually, he may have known pretty much everybody from Nain because this little town probably only has a few hundred people living in it. And that's noteworthy, especially when you notice what the text says in verse 12. 
that there's a funeral possession, uh, procession coming out of Nain, a widow with her son who has just died. And it says a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, if there's only a couple hundred people in your town, a considerable crowd means pretty much the whole town. Everybody has come with her to support her, to grieve with her in this moment. And as the funeral procession is walking out the gate, Jesus is walking into the town. Life, the Lord of life is walking in and crosses paths with the funeral. And our text says that Jesus is accompanied by his disciples, verse 11 says, and a great crowd went with him. So Jesus has with him the intimate inner circle of his followers who are watching his every move, listening to his every word. They're not really fully understanding him yet, but at least in their best intentions, they want to be committed to him and follow him. And he has a crowd of seekers, spiritual seekers that are following him around because he's been doing miracles and he's been healing with authority. So there's two crowds coming to connect with each other and they're meeting at the town gate, which is, of course, a very public place where public meetings and important conversations would happen. And what I'm trying to emphasize is this is a very public event attended by the whole town and a big crowd of spiritual seekers from the surrounding region. And yet our text says this, that when the Lord saw her, actually, I'm just going to stop right there. The Lord saw her. Luke doesn't say when Jesus saw her. He says when the Lord saw her. He's emphasizing the authority of Jesus. Jesus is in charge. He's Lord of creation. And yet the Lord saw her. She is a widow. She's lost her son. I don't even know what to say about that. A few of you, very few of you, have some idea of what it's like to lose a child. Some of you have gone through it. Some of the people hearing this sermon. And I personally just can't comprehend a greater pain than that. Breaks my heart just to think about it. And it breaks my heart uh, to know that lots of people have had to feel that pain in the history of the world, including in this room. It's a great pain. She's dealing with the pain of losing her son. And that already unspeakable pain is compounded by a lot of other pains. She's already a widow. She's already lost her husband. Grief upon grief is happening here. It says he's her only son. I don't know if she had daughters. Perhaps it's her only child. So even though the whole town is with her, I, I don't know. I can't see into her heart. But I would guess that she's feeling very, very alone. Even though the whole town is with her. And on top of the deep emotional pain of this moment, 
She's living in a society that doesn't have a lot of social safety nets, doesn't have a lot of jobs for women. She's lost her husband. She's lost her son. This puts her in a very vulnerable financial position. She, she could end up destitute. And Jesus sees her. Have you noticed that the gospel is so often emphasized? There's a big crowd with a lot of people and Jesus sees each one. Some of us are good at that. Some of us are better at that, that than others. But none of us does that perfectly. And you may even come to a church community where there's a lot of people who love you, but still see not seen, not known. I mean, I feel like I don't see or know myself half the time. Anybody else relate to that? Trying to see y'all. I don't even know what's going on over here. But God sees us. Jesus sees us. And he sees everybody. He loves everybody. But notice this about the heart of our Lord. When people are really, really hurting... He focuses on them. He sees them. I just know that there are a lot of people in this room who are really, really hurting. For a variety of reasons. Regrets about our own mistake. Our own mistakes and our sins. Grief. For lost loved ones. Grief for lost relationships. Financial troubles, physical health problems. I know there's a lot of hurt in here. And I know sometimes there's this feeling that when we come to church, we got to put a happy face on it. But you don't have to. And sometimes there's a feeling that everybody else has it all together. I can tell you as a pastor, they actually don't either, you know, because they come and talk to me about it. But I don't either. The guy with the mic does not have it all together. Y'all are like, amen. <laughs> we already know, Pastor. And when I say I don't have it all together, I mean, it's not just that we're spiritually struggling and we deal with our pain and temptation, but sometimes we just hurt, don't we? Sometimes it's like we're believing God. But our hearts are just in pain and we can't get out of that moment. And what I'm trying to say to you is Jesus sees you. And the text says, when the Lord Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. Everybody say compassion. That's our key word today. The Lord had compassion on her. I spent some time digging into what that word means. I read a lot of stuff. I think we use it wrong sometimes. I put a lot of quotes and stuff. They're all in these notes, but I'm keeping the notes under the Bible. I'm just preaching from my heart. Here's, I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. Compassion just means he cared about her. He cared about her. So when he saw her pain, he's moved to do something about it. He valued her. She was important to him. 
He treasured her. Compassion is how love responds to human pain. When we love people, when we value people, we have, and we see them hurting, we have compassion on them. Jesus has compassion for her. He loves her. He values her. He cares about her. And this compassion moves him into action. Now, I want you to notice something important. I'll ask you a rhetorical question. Look at the text. Look through the story. How many people asked Jesus for help in this story? I said it's a rhetorical question, but anybody want to yell it out? What do you see? Nobody asked Jesus for help. Is there anything spoken about the faith of the widow? Doesn't say a word about her faith. She's just grieving. It's interesting, especially because this follows after the last story. Wasn't ever sermon fire last week? It was really good. Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. He trusted the authority of Jesus. And we get saved by grace through faith. We receive God's blessings by faith. The Gospels, including the Gospel of Luke, will sometimes say Jesus doesn't or couldn't do miracles in an area because of their lack of faith. Faith really matters. And if last week the story was emphasizing the point, we need to have trust in Jesus in order to open ourselves to the fullness of what he wants to do in our lives, which is true and very important. This week, a different point is being illustrated in front of us, which is this point. Nobody has faith in Jesus until his grace comes first. His compassion creates faith. I mean, by the end of the story, people are saying God has visited his people. That's a confession of faith. But they're not doing that until the compassion of Jesus already came near. If you want the fancy theological term for this is prevenient grace, prevenient grace. That's the grace that goes before faith. You get we need to trust in the Lord in order to open ourselves to the fullness of what he wants to do in our lives. But none of us ever would have trusted God unless his compassion moved him to come to us first and love us. Jesus is not asked. He just sees her and he has compassion on her. And then he does several things. First, he speaks a word of hope to her. He says, do not weep. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Don't get this twisted. This does not mean you can't grieve when you're sad, church. I've had Christians tell me a number of times, I know I shouldn't be grieving and crying because I'm going to see him again. That's not true. Jesus cried at a funeral. You could cry at a funeral. Not this funeral. Lazarus. It's a different funeral. We can grieve. We can grieve, church. It's okay. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing is how Paul described the Christian life. There's pain. We can be honest about our pain. But when he says do not weep, 
He's not saying you shouldn't grieve, you shouldn't express emotion, you shouldn't be sad. What he's saying is, I'm about to undo what is causing your pain. He's speaking a word of hope. Then, the next thing he does is interesting. He came up and touched the beer. So the beer, it's just like a platform that they're carrying the body of her son on as they take him out for burial. That's what's happening right here. And here's the thing. Jesus is not going to raise the dead in this story through touch. He's going to speak a word of command. Spoiler. You already heard it, though. He's going to speak a word of command. So why does he go touch the beer? And I just got to tell you, in my devotional life, I've been reading through Leviticus recently. Now, I know some of us have a hard time with Leviticus. I understand. If you're getting discouraged, you can come back to Leviticus later in your quiet time. But I've been reading through Leviticus and it's been good. And one of the things that I've been noticing reading through Leviticus while studying the Gospel of Luke for preaching and teaching is just in the Old Covenant. One of the things that's said over and over is God is giving a bunch of rituals, including rituals of cleanness and uncleanness. And those are really just like metaphorical practices to teach the people they need to honor the Lord as holy. Don't be casual about God. He loves you. You're, you can find security and safety in his loving presence. But we need to learn to stand in awe of God. And Jesus makes the same point. He starts the Lord's Prayer that he taught his disciples to teach with the petition, Hallowed be your name, which is what Leviticus is all about. Lord, help us to see how holy you are. But there's clean and unclean laws, and part of the way that they sanctified the name of the Lord, that's the, the language that Leviticus used, hallowed the name of the Lord, is that if you were unclean in a variety of ways, you couldn't come into the presence of God. You couldn't go to the tabernacle. You had to wash your clothes and wait, take a bath. It wasn't because God was offended by dirt or blood or any of these other things. But the ritual was teaching them to honor the presence of the Lord as holy. But it was a temporary teaching mechanism. And even priests, if they did certain things, couldn't come into the holy place. Or couldn't come near the tabernacle. They couldn't touch any of the holy things until they'd gone through a period of cleansing. And what Jesus does in the Gospels is systematically do everything that makes people unclean and not get unclean. What he does is come and touch the lepers. What he does is take people who, even if they were born into the priestly family, never could have served because they're their deformities. Like the man with the withered hand, the man more born blind. And he heals them and makes them a kingdom of priests. And, and to walk up and touch the beer, no priest was going to do, nobody was going to do it because it would make him unclean. But he comes and touches it and he doesn't get unclean. Where Jesus goes, Jesus doesn't get unclean, but cleansing and life flows out from him. There's a new way to hallow the name of the Lord. He walks up and touches it, the funeral beer. And the bear stood still. And then he said, verse 14, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. I can't embellish this enough to make us feel the reality of it. I'm sure Chosen will make an episode eventually. Or we could just get Chauncey in here to act it out dramatically on stage for us. 
As I'm trying to picture it in my own mind, I wonder, how did he say it? How did he say it? Maybe he yelled it. Maybe he said it loud so everybody can hear. There's a crowd. That would make sense. I kind of like to imagine that he said it really quiet just so we know he doesn't have to raise his voice. I don't know. But he just speaks the word. Young man, I say to you, arise, get up. The words of Jesus have the power to resurrect the dead. The title of my sermon, by the way, is The Compassionate Lord. And the text is helping us see both sides. He has compassion and he's the Lord. He's more compassionate than we are. But even if we were just as compassionate as he was, we couldn't do this. This is about authority over life and death. I think maybe we should tremble a little more in the presence of Jesus. He loves us. He's compassionate. and He speaks the word. By the way, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that one day he's going to speak this word and every human who has ever lived is going to rise. To a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. That should make you tremble. This isn't just a historical event. This is a historical event telling you what your experience is going to be. Not the mother necessarily, but the young man. You will hear him say these words or something just like it. And you will rise. That's going to happen to me and you at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Makes you think, doesn't it? He comes near with compassion and grace. And he has absolute authority over life and death, which means, church, if we know Jesus and if we've trusted in Jesus, even in the midst of our great pain, we have really good reasons to rejoice. It also means if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you haven't trusted him, you need to get right with Christ. You need to turn from sin and trust in the Lord Jesus so you'll be ready when he speaks these words. He died on the cross for you so you could be forgiven. Anybody who trusts in him will find a compassionate Lord. His compassion came before your trust. He's calling you to himself, saying, repent, be born again, trust in me. But Jesus isn't done here. He says, do not weep. That's speaking a word of hope. He goes and touches the funeral bier. The bear stood still. He says to the young man, I say to you, arise. The dead, man, uh, the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. I love that phrase. I don't think he would have raised this young guy from the dead if it wasn't for mama. Jesus loves mamas. Don't you love mamas? Good call. As a matter of fact... One of the things I was thinking today, perhaps Jesus is uh, wanting to say to some of us, I, he's called him a young man. I kind of imagine him as a young adult. Maybe Jesus is wanting to give some of you back to your mother tonight. He loves your mother. He wants, he wants you to have a relationship with her. He wants you to love her. Jesus 
touches the bier, he speaks, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sits up. Jesus gives the now living man back to his mother. And what do the people do? Verse 16, fear sees them all. Fear sees them all. They're learning to tremble in the presence of the Lord. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. Is that true? Is that the right interpretation? Well, yes, but it's not all that should be said. If you read through the history of the world, you're not going to find anybody else like Jesus. In the Old Testament, you can find the story of Elijah praying and raising a widow's son from the dead. And this story is very clearly and consciously echoing that story. But if you go compare the two, you can do it for homework if you want to. You can see there's really no comparison. Elijah's on his face crying out, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, God. Jesus says, arise. There was an ancient prophecy saying there's a great prophet coming. There's a prophet coming greater than Moses. There's a prophet coming greater than Elijah. Jesus characterizes himself as a prophet. He is the word of God. Every word he speaks is the word of God. So insofar as they're saying a great prophet has arisen among us, they're right. But there's much more to say. The second statement is true. It's truer and it's true beyond what they knew they were saying. A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. They probably weren't sure what they meant by that, but they were just aware. We've seen compassion and power today. That's unlike anything we're used to. And they were trembling and they were worshiping God. The compassion of Jesus came first. And here it is awakening their faith. Jesus is the God man. God himself, the creator, come near. The son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 17 says, this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word is getting out. Faith in Jesus is spreading. People are starting to talk about his compassion and his authority. And one of the things I was pondering and meditating on this week is, what are we supposed to do with a story like this? What is God saying to us? And I want to, for the last few minutes here, invite you to read this story on two levels. As a matter of fact, whenever you read the Gospels, whenever you read a story about Jesus... You can just read it on both of these levels. And to summarize what I mean, I'm just going to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, Colossians 1.15. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Well, it means two things. First of all, God is invisible. He's a spirit. We can't see him, but God has revealed himself in many ways, but most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. Which means, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. We've been told a vivid story because the Holy Spirit, inspiring Luke to write this text, wants you to look at the eyes 
of Jesus looking at that mama, that widow, in her grief, and see the compassion of Jesus, and then see his authority, and, and know that's how God looks at you. That's one thing it means when we say Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the fullest revelation of who God is. But it also means that he is the model of authentic humanity. He's God incarnate, fully God and fully human. And you may remember back in Genesis chapter 1 when God created human beings. It says he created them male and female and he created them in the what of God? Somebody shout it out. Everybody say the image of God. So Paul in this hymn in Colossians 1 is telling us two things about Jesus. He is the fullest revelation of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. But also he shows us what would it mean for us to be authentic, fully flourishing human beings. And I want to start with that second question, which is a very important one. And then come back to the the first thought, which is more important. The, 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 sec, the second thought is this. What does Jesus in this story show us about what it means for us to live as authentic human beings? And I think it's fairly straightforward. It's fairly simple. Authentic human existence is compassionate living. To say authentic just means to be what we are made to be. To be the fullest version of ourselves. You could say to flourish, to thrive. You could also just say joyful human living is compassionate living. It's a life of active compassion. We defined that word earlier. Compassion is when you love people in such a way that when you see them hurting, your heart is warmed within you and you're moved into action to go bring life to them like Jesus did. That is an essential part of what it means to be truly human. To be compassionate towards one another. A community of compassion. To be compassionate towards our neighbors, towards the world. Now, as I thought about that thought, one thing that happened is, it made me grateful for you. You are a compassionate church. I have experienced your compassion in my own life, by the way. Many of you have loved me. And... I see it in the way you relate to each other. I hear stories about it all the time, how God brings healing to one of you through another of you, your compassion. And I've seen a lot of you not just being compassionate towards one another, but trying to embrace a lifestyle of compassion out in the community where there's people that are hurting. And I don't want to just drive by and ignore it. I want to drive in. I want to move in and be present and see people like Jesus does and let that stir my heart and move me into action. Thank God. Aren't you grateful for your church? Everybody say, thank God. I love this compassionate church. I also want to be really, really real. Remember when I say we don't have to have it all together? Anybody ever get tired of trying to take care of people? Do we get exhausted sometimes, church? Hey, if you're here and you're feeling exhausted and trying to live compassionately, but you just feel beat up and tired and exhausted... I want you to hear that Jesus sees you and Jesus loves you. He loves you and I love you. And I want you to understand this about your identity. You are not God's sponge out of whom he's trying to squeeze maximum productivity. 
You're God's beloved child. You're his beloved child. And when we get tired, we try to find a way to describe it and deal with it. And so over the last few years at our church, we've talked more about healthy rhythms. We want a lifestyle of active service and we also want rest. Amen. We got to learn how to do that. Active service and rest. We want to talk about healthy rhythms, but we also talk about being tired. Don't feel bad if you get tired. The Bible said you would in Isaiah 40. Even youths shall get weary. Amen. And some of us haven't been youth for a minute. But even you young people get tired. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. We've been learning about resting in him. And as we've been trying to talk about that, we're searching for language. And one of the terms that became a thing in our culture that people talked about, and I myself have used at times, is the term compassion fatigue. You heard that? Compassion fatigue. Trying to care for people and their pain. You just get exhausted. And how do we deal with that? And it became a lot of sort of uh, wisdom, pop culture wisdom in our society, if you have compassion fatigue, you deal with it with self-care. That's the response. And insofar as it goes, there's some definitely some truth there. We do get tired of taking care of people, and we need to learn to come to Jesus and rest. Can we say amen to that again? But as, as this language has become more pervasive in our culture, I've had some concerns and um, Here's a few of the concerns. One of them is just a practical concern. We could self-care, 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 and we're still exhausted and anxious and not better. That's just a practical concern. Um, I became aware also that in the way that we in our culture and even Christians in our culture are using this language sometimes and talking about these things, it just seems to be in a certain uneasy tension with a, a biblical view, which definitely involves healthy rhythms of work and rest. But it, but it also seems to say the more self-focused we are, the more miserable we're going to be. And the path to joy is a path of self-sacrificial, compassionate, active service. And I try to talk to people about this from the Bible, but some of us uh, believe the TV and the Twitter and the other stuff more than the Bible. And so every now and then I'll go read a neurological study so I can show you that Proverbs 35 is correct when it says the word of the Lord proves true. Amen, church? And here's a, an interesting thing. I've got all the notes and it was, I think, one of, one of the moments of clarity for me as I was thinking about how to preach the sermons. Y'all don't want me to read you all those quotes from those neurological art- articles. But if you are that guy who wants it, I will text it to you, okay? Suparis, just text me and I'll send it to you, brother. But a significant amount of neurological, neuropsychology research has been studying this question because the problem is so pervasive. And here's what it says. Here's a few things. One, compassion is not the same thing as empathy. Empathy means feeling with, uh, mirroring other people's emotions. Compassion means exactly what I just defined it as biblically. It means when you see other people's pain, there's a positive surge of love, warmth for them that moves you into action on their behalf. They're not mutually exclusive. They're both good insofar as they go. Jesus is empathetic. He weeps with people 
at the tomb of Lazarus. And, and, and uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, weep with those who weep. Or is that Romans 12? Anyway, Paul says it. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Empathy is good. But here's what the research says. Empathy, first of all, you can love, you can be empathetic without loving anybody. Second of all, empathy can lead to uh, tremendous burnout and fatigue in a way that then causes us to avoid people and to isolate because the pain is too much. But, but what they found is compassion lights up a totally different part of the brain. It's a different thing altogether. And you, there's no such thing as compassion fatigue. It's actually neurologically rejuvenating. And this, the research has found over and over that while self-care is good, self-care has shown itself to not be effective at eliminating the phenomena that people call compassion fatigue, which is actually empathic distress. Now, see, y'all already got bored and I didn't even read all the quotes. That's why I kept the notes under the Bible today. Here's, here's what that neurological research is trying to say to us. There's a reason why the Bible is emphasizing compassion, okay? And what it's saying is this. It's, it's not saying if, if you're hurting, I've got to take on your hurt so that if you're not okay, I'm not going to be okay and I can't differentiate between myself and you. Because God has called me to usually take care of like 60 hurting people every week. Right. And you got the same thing. One of the research things I, I shared was teaching healthcare workers to turn their empathy into compassion because they were all getting burnt out. And what Jesus is modeling for us is a way of, of being human. That the neurologists are saying it turns out if you just love people and value them in such a way that when you see their pain, you're not focusing on trying to mirror their emotions, which usually makes you more self-centered, but instead you're moving towards them with a warm heart to care for them, that actually not only do you help them better, but that your life becomes joyful. Compassionate humanity is authentic humanity. But can we be real that even once we've identified compassion, sometimes we're not very compassionate. <laughs> we still got problems. I tend to always respond with compassion when one of my children, or most of the time, when one of my children is hurting, right? But the further you get away from me, relationally and emotionally, it's different, isn't it? I'm being up vulnerable up here. Y'all can just look at me during this part. Y'all ever find a compassion deficiency in your life? Why? Why is it? Well, one reason is just sin. We struggle with sin. We need God's forgiveness and grace. But here's another thing that I would say. Compassion to those who are already very close to us is natural. But compassion for the vulnerable and the hurting all around us, including those that we don't know, including our enemies, is supernatural. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that we learn to live this way is to come back to the other point. Jesus isn't just showing us the way to live. He's showing us who he is as God. My, ca- my capacity for love in myself is very puny. But what he's showing us is, is this. The life of faith is a life that looks at the Lord and sees the Lord looking back at us and knows there's absolute authority and there's a God who loves me in my pain and comes near to me. 
The depth of the compassion of Jesus is, of course, displayed in his cross. He died on the cross for your sins. He endured shame and damnation and abandonment so that you don't have to know those realities as your ultimate destiny. And the ultimate revelation of the lordship of Jesus is his resurrection. Which means all that pain doesn't get the last word. But our text today, our story today, is... Showing us something very important, that he sees us, he loves us, and before we ever know how to ask for it, his heart moves near. Some of you came to church today just trying to obey, but there was, I mean, you're feeling, I don't have any faith in my heart. I don't have any spiritual feelings. I'm not feeling it. And by the way, if you see other people worshiping and they're raising their hands, you think they're feeling it, I'm not feeling it. I'll just tell you my own experience. This doesn't mean I'm feeling it. This means, Lord, you're still the king. Help That's often what it means. And if you came here with like uh, zero feelings of compassion for hurting people, zero feelings of desire to worship God, what our text has shown us today is this. Jesus isn't waiting for your faith to be compassionate towards you. He sees you and he loves you and he wants a relationship with you and he cares about you. And if you'll put your faith in him. There is a possibility for healing, a life of trust, a life of compassion, which doesn't mean our wounds go away, but it means that as we share in the sufferings of Jesus through a life of active compassion, he heals us along the way. And the invitation today is to look into his eyes and see his heart and trust him. As we get ready to respond in worship, I'm just going to invite you to stand again and put your hands out like we sometimes do in a posture of receiving. And in your mind, one more time, I just want to ask you to visualize Jesus looking at that widow, but put yourself in the story. I want you to visualize Jesus looking at you. And if you're one of the people here, there's a lot of us here today that have open wounds at church this morning. Just show them to Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see who he is and see his heart towards you. There's stuff inside of you that needs to be healed. Just tell him. Just talk to him about it. If you're weary and heavy laden, just come tell him he wants to give you rest. If you've been living in sin, just say, have compassion on me. Forgive me, Lord. Heal me, Lord. your love and compassion towards other people has grown cold, just say, rekindle the flame of your love in my heart. Jesus, you are very good.
Heal us now. We worship you. And Lord, I, I pray, sometimes we've got a lot of stuff inside of us that we don't know how to get out, but I pray that even as we sing and as we go from here, fellowship, different things happen, would your spirit be healing us and renewing us this day? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.